we're talking about today is, is the second coming of Christ. We started talking about it last week. We're really continuing that discussion this week. And as we've been working through this book of uh, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, it's this consistent idea of what does it look like to be this hopeful and this healthy church. And I think one of those things, one of those keys is to be thinking about the second coming of Christ uh, regularly. And not in a way where it's, it's out of paranoia or speculation. And, and not in a way where it's just this emphatic defeat of, oh, Jesus, just come back. Right? But this, this, this unwavering hope and expectation that Jesus is coming back and he could come back at any moment. And for those who are in Christ, it's going to be a beautiful moment. Those who are not in Christ, it's going to be a terrifying moment. And we as a church are designed to bring as many into Christ as possible. So it'll be a beautiful moment. Jesus is coming back. It's a promise we're going to talk about today. And our job as a church is to stay awake. That's the topic of the message today. That's your first goal of the message today is to literally stay awake because this is really important stuff that we need to understand as believers. But really we're talking about this spiritual concept of staying awake as a church, being active, and personally and collectively being ready for Jesus to come back at any moment. Now, any time, uh, admittedly, that, that the word end times or second coming of Christ is brought up, there's this collective interest and curiosity by people. And I think at times we're so focused on the how and the when that we forget the most important part of the equation. And that is, what are we doing until that time comes? And, and almost every time the second coming of Christ is spoken about in the Bible, that is the emphasis. What are the Christians doing? What is the church doing until that time comes? And that's exactly uh, what we're going to be seeing in the text today as Paul, in this whole section from last week to this week, is, is kind of uh, really wrestling through these tough questions with this young church. And what we talked about last week is what happens to those Christians who die before Jesus comes back? And that really ended in a great point of hope and encouragement that there is uh, no uh, disadvantage to those who die before Jesus come back, comes back. In fact, they have the advantage. They're going to be restored and with him before those who are alive in Christ. And then this week, it's the other two tough questions that are kind of wrestling through that many of us have today. When is Jesus coming back? And what's going to happen when he comes back? And understanding those things are very important as questions, understanding the biblical response to those, those questions. So I'm going to get into the, to the text here. I want to pray for us because I, I think it's important that we really, all individually, really pray that God would speak to us his truth in this, because I do think there has been a lot of misunderstanding through the centuries and even con in a contemporary sense of what this means for us. So I want to pray for each and every one of you before we read the text today. So Lord, I do pray that you would just speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that use my words as an extension of your truth. Uh, God, that you would take away anything that is not false, but that your truth would really rest in our hearts, especially something so important as your second coming. But God, more than anything, I just pray for those who are in you, who have a faith in you, that this would be a source of great encouragement and hope that there is no fear or speculation or anxiety, but God, that we have this security and this confidence in you. And I pray for anyone who's listening today 
who doesn't have that confidence in you, who doesn't have that faith in you, that's wondering what the future is going to be like with this anxiety, that they can find a confidence in you through faith. That they would know there is a return, that there is a judgment coming, and that they would be subject to that apart from you. So I I pray especially for that person today as we go through this, whoever that might be listening today, that they'd come in in this newfound confidence in you that many of us share this morning. But Lord, I just pray that as we read these verses, again, that it's your Holy Spirit speaking to us, being alive and active in our hearts, and making, into, making us into a more hopeful and healthy church in your name and in your power. So we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're not already open then, I invite you to open to First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be doing the first 11 verses today. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates... We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Got a lot to unpack here today. And again, this is one of those kind of theologically heavy hitting sermons where there's a lot of directions I could go on this. And this could be easily multiple uh, Sundays just on this text. But if you're coming today hoping that I will tell you the date of Jesus' return or that I'm going to give you a comprehensive timeline of the return of Christ in, in the last days, you're going to be disappointed. Most of all, because I don't think that's what this text is telling us. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. And today is going to be really a lot of of look at what we've read and what this means for us right now, today, as believers, and how this can make us into a hopeful and a healthy church. And so again, Paul seems to be addressing a question right off the bat from these Thessalonians, uh, the one that many of us probably ask and we're curious about, when is Jesus coming back? It could be really helpful just to know it, right? And there's no question, and and we have this, this plan we can work with. And this is really the first uh, part of this. When it comes to staying awake in these times, it's understanding God's plan. And also accepting what you can't understand in God's plan. And right away he starts this out, uh, now brothers and sisters, about the times and dates we don't need to write to you. Because you know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What this is saying is that the return of Jesus, the rapture, whatever you want to uh, associate this with, is not going to be something that we have a countdown for or a 30-day warning. That it's going to come suddenly. 
And there's a couple of points I want to get out there first of all. When we look at this in the context of the whole Bible, what we know about the return of Christ, uh, first, is that there is a certainty in this. This is not something speculative or something theoretical. All throughout the Bible, we read that Jesus will come again. This is something Jesus himself spoke about many times with the disciples. You know, all through the Gospels, you see him preparing his disciples and preparing us for the second coming. Now, of the 27 books in the New Testament, 23 of them refer to the second coming of Christ. All right, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is a verse referring to the second coming of Christ or the times around it. And for every mention, and this is in all of the Bible, Old and the New Testament, whether it's prophecy or narrative, for every one reference to Christ's first coming, there are eight references to his second coming. This is for sure. If you believe in the Bible, this is something that's not out in left field. It's something that's spoken about over and over again. The point of this is that we need to live in the perspective of this reality. When you understand God's plan, the plan is that Jesus is coming back. Period. It's there and it's factual in the scriptures. And the second part, as we kind of see today and in many other parts, is that it's going to be very sudden. There's an imminence to the return. And what that means is that we're not waiting for some lockstep program for certain things to happen first before Jesus can come back. From the time that he ascended into heaven, we were told, the disciples were told, and we're told that he could come back at any moment. Right? Maybe even before the sermon is over today. It could happen at any time. And so when we think of the end times as a time that, that is yet to come, or the end times as something that we could be in now but weren't in before, we're looking at it wrong. Paul assured the believers of the time that they were in the end times. All right? And the end times really is referring to the last age. It's the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. So we've been in the end times for about 2,000 years ago. This is the last age of the earth. And then when Jesus comes back, everything will end as we know it. He's going to make it immensely better than it was before. And so when you're looking for these, uh, these world events to match up with what we would know as the signs of the end times, the fact is, is that any time in human history between the ascension and now, all of these conditions have been true in varying degrees around the world. And that's why if you run the danger of saying, this is happening in Israel, this is happening in Russia, and this is happening in Australia, and this is, so these fit the things, those have been true at any point throughout human history from the ascension until now. It's the sign that we're in the end times. And that's where Jesus told his disciples that, you'll know I haven't come back left yet, and this is what Paul is assuring the Thessalonians, is Jesus has not come back yet because the signs are still there. We're still in the end times. And so these signs aren't so much as something to prompt the immediate return of Jesus, but to show the proof that Jesus needs to come back. It hasn't happened yet. And the world will always continue to get worse until Jesus comes back. So we're told over and over again, don't try to predict the end times. The the times and the dates are not for you to know. All the information you need to know, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, you already know. And that information is that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. But that hasn't stopped 
many, many people through the years of trying. I'm going to show you here a few examples. These were taken from a stack about six times their size. And all of the books that I took these from were books that said the end of the world will happen before the year 1980. They're all out of print. You can't buy them anymore. But you see things here like... uh, Striking parallels between today's news events and Christ's second coming. And he made sure to say that it happened before 1980. Uh, Signs of the end times, it goes on and on. These books could probably fill the sanctuary through the years of people who tried to predict the end times. And they've been wrong. Because they're looking at it the wrong way. It's not, when will he come back? But the emphasis is that he's coming back very soon. So what are we doing until that happens? Maybe you remember this book here. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Whoops. And this is one that sold about 5 million copies in the U.S. alone. It was taught in many evangelical churches. There were people who were pulling their kids out of school. There were people who were rushing into marriage because they thought, we better get married now if we want to be united in heaven. And and there's all sorts of people that bought into this. TBN the uh, uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network actually interrupted their programming in, sep- in September of, 2000, uh, sorry, of 1988 because they're trying to prepare people for this. Didn't happen. And they just kick- kept kicking the can down the road of when it would happen, and eventually he stopped trying to predict. Now, this is something we all remember from very recent history, the billboards all around, right? Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. The Bible guarantees it. Whoops. I don't need to beat this point into the ground for you to understand what I'm saying. There's virtually no value in predicting and speculating on on world events or what you think the Bible might be telling you. It will be imminent. And Jesus said many times, most famously, in Matthew 24, that nobody can know. Not even the angels will know. Only the Father will know. And the point that he continuously makes is not to predict, but to be prepared. That is understanding God's plan. That's what it means to stay awake. And there's this idea that somehow if we know, it's going to lead to the positive. But I believe what the, the point is continuously is that if we know, it could it ultimately lead to the negative. Right? If you knew that it was going to be 50 years into the future... You'd say, I got 49 years to kind of do what I want until I need to be serious. Right? If you knew it would be a week from now, it would probably cause some form of panic. But if you lived with this consistent understanding that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, that we don't know, it could be at any moment, it leads this church into this healthy perspective of we need to do everything we have to do right now. Because Jesus could come back at any moment. So about the times and the dates, or probably a better way to translate this, is the times and the seasons. The, the actual time, chronos, or the dates, which is epoch, or the seasons, or the conditions. I don't need to write to you, because you don't need to know what those are. Be prepared now. God never intended you to know exactly when Christ was coming, but to know that he is coming. And that's enough information. So the application I really want you to draw from this is that when you know Christ's return is imminent, right, and that's the biblical understanding, 
It should fill the church with this passion to accomplish its mission. What is the mission of the church? To have the best potlucks in the West Metro? No. To win that church league softball game? No. It's to be disciples. It's to be united as a body with the power of Christ to make disciples. It's the mission of the church. If you know Jesus is coming back at any moment, then we need to be doing everything we can be doing, using all of our resources and energy and passion to make as many disciples as possible, because we're about to reread in verse 3, it is a terrible day for those who don't know Jesus when Jesus comes back. The day of the Lord that we read about here is not a day of joy for those who don't know him. And all throughout the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, it's, it's written as a dreadful day in the book of Malachi, or one that will be filled with darkness and not with light in the book of Amos. And the day really is referring to this period of Jesus' return and the inescapable judgment of the ungodly. Our passion as a church is to have as many people removed from that day as possible. And that means accomplishing the mission set before us, because this is what we read in verse 3. For those who are not there, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. That fills me with sadness. These are some of your neighbors and co-workers, maybe some of your family. That's what the future looks for them, and the day that could suddenly appear like a thief in the night that we don't know when it will happen should fill you with this great love and compassion for the needy and the broken of the world. That when Jesus returns, we want them to be on the right side of this. It's going to come on them suddenly. They won't be prepared. Like a, a woman in labor pains, we read. Now somehow... This is a reoccurring story. I don't know how this is possible, but every year or two, you read this story about this woman who was pregnant and didn't know she was pregnant until she was having a child. Okay, and this happened recently. Uh, she was on a plane, and she, went and she delivered the child in the airplane bathroom, not knowing she was pregnant. I'm not sure how it's possible, but it keeps on happening. But you know what happens when they're feeling the labor pains? They can't say, hold on, I'm not ready. <laughs> Give me nine months to prepare for this. It's too late. And that's what this day is going to be like for those who don't know Jesus. And that should sadden us as a church. The love of Christ would compel us to share Jesus with as many people as possible. If Jesus is coming at any moment, we need to stay awake. We need to stay active. We're driven by such love to share Christ with others that we want them to be spared from the atrocities of the judgment and ultimately the punishment of hell. You've been given this truth of God. Now you need to live in the perspective of this truth. And that's exactly what we talk about in verses 4 and 5 is embracing God's perspective in this whole thing, that we are not in the darkness, so it shouldn't surprise us as a thief that doesn't mean we're going to know when he's coming, but we know that he's coming. When Jesus returns, it should not surprise us. Because we're children of the light, children of the day. 
This is really talking about how we see the world. We're living with this assurance and confidence of all that's going to come before us because we believe in the truth that we read and the truth that's been revealed to us. There's this great contrast we see between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. That the future judgment of unbelievers is going to be filled with shock and surprise and destruction and pain and no escape. But those who honor God and trust Jesus... There's this future of light and salvation being made new and alive in Christ. And the point here is that when we see God's perspective, we don't fear the return of the Lord. We look forward to it personally with joy and expectation. As we see here, but you, how it starts, that believers are different than the rest of the world. Jesus will come back. At any moment, we live with that perspective and this confidence of what he is yet to do. That we are nothing like those in the darkness. We're different, because of, we're different than the rest of the world, not because of us, but because of him. And when we're rescued from that darkness and shown the light, our perspective changes to that of hope and confidence of what is to come. We may not know exactly how it's going to come, but we know it's going to come. The application here is that we should always live with this great certainty of the future as Christians. This means knowing how it's going to end, essentially. And so I just want to give you a theoretical uh, experiment. Use your imagination with me. So the Super Bowl is happening tonight. And let's say, okay, if you're a Rams fan or a Bengals fan, you don't have to use your imagination, but let's imagine your favorite team is playing in the Super Bowl tonight. Most of us are probably Vikings fans, so you have to really use your imagination here, okay? (laughs) Your favorite team's playing in the Super Bowl tonight, but you're not able to watch it live. You have to record it and watch it later, and you're doing everything you can to keep the ending spoiled for you. You shut off your phone, you don't watch the news, you're trying to stay away from people, and, and you're finally getting home, and your neighbor shouts out the door, and like, isn't it great? Your favorite team won the Super Bowl! And you go, Ugh. But you're still going to watch it anyway, right? Yes. Yeah, you're still going to watch it. You know the ending. And now throughout the whole game, no matter what is happening, if your team is down by 40 at halftime, if you're up by that one point at halftime and wondering how they might blow it in the second half, no, you're not watching it with any kind of anxiety or question or doubt. You know the ending. And so no matter what the score is throughout the game, you know they're going to win in the end. That's how the believers are supposed to go through life. That's what it means to stay awake, because you know how this whole thing ends. No matter how tough it is for you right now, whatever questions you might have about this life, you know how it's going to end. That's what the hope of God really is in our lives. It's how we're supposed to approach life as a child of the light, that God has placed our future destiny in plain sight. He told us exactly how this is going to turn out, and we don't know the steps from here to there, but we know what's to come. Nothing will overtake your final destiny in Christ, and we don't need to fear or speculate, but we need to live with confidence. That's the eternal perspective we have as Christians. And so if you live with that kind of perspective, it's naturally going to play out in your life. And that's really what we're seeing in verses 6 through 8. It's not just thinking through God's perspective, it's living with godly purpose. 
We live according to God's purpose. If we are children of the light and we have been shown the truths of God, then it's going to affect the way we live, the way we, we talk, the way we act. All of it should be affected and we should be different than the rest of the world. And there's this urging here. Don't be like those who have fallen asleep. These are talking, uh, now this is a different metaphor than before. He's talking before those who have fallen asleep, talking about those who died. Now he's talking about those who are asleep, right? those who are spiritually asleep, referring most likely to the unbelievers. Right? This could also be referring to lukewarm Christians, but I think it's, it's all those who are not in Christ. Don't be like them. Don't live with this spiritual drowsiness. And falling asleep is what happens when you're not intentional about your faith. Now, how, have you, how many of you have experienced kind of driving late at night or driving overnight and you start to get drowsy behind the wheel? Anyone ever have that moment? It is terrifying. Right? You're driving along and you can kind of feel the eyes get heavy and the head nodding or maybe a slight veer. And immediately you snap awake, you roll the window down, get blasted with air, you, you blast the radio as loud as possible, or you call someone and say, I need to stay awake, help me out here. You understand the dangers of that, and you take all the steps that are necessary to get out of that situation. What he's saying is, don't fall asleep at the wheel of your faith. Don't let yourself get drowsy spiritually. If you're in this spot where all of a sudden you haven't prayed for a number of days or weeks, you haven't cracked open your Bible, you're kind of feeling apathetic about church and you're falling out of fellowship and you just don't really care about being with other Christians anymore, and all the stuff of your life, the spiritual foundations of your life just seem kind of optional or secondary, you're falling asleep at the wheel. And you need to snap out of it, recognize the dangers of what is ahead of you, and get help. You need to be praying for God to renew your heart. You need to humble yourself before Him. You need to find accountability with others. This idea of staying awake and staying sober is this, this, this self-controlled part of your life in which you're taking the faith seriously. If Jesus is coming back at any moment, you need to take the faith seriously and not be asleep when he returns. Now, I edited down uh, verses 6 through 8 here just to fit on the screen, but I want to read all of it for you. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, being awake is just really talking about our spiritual awareness and perception, right? Being sober is really talking about like sober-minded or self-control, and that's really talking about our discipline. And those who sleep and those who are drunk, right? that's for people who are part of the night. Those are the kind of things that non-believers would do. Believers should be different. And so you have to be proactive about your faith. And so Paul uses this, this metaphor that he loves, armor. Putting on armor. This is the first time he used it. He used it again probably more notably in Ephesians 6 as he talks about the full armor of God. He uses it also in Romans. 
But it's this idea that if, if you're someone who takes your faith seriously, you know that, that faith and spiritual life oftentimes is a battle. It's not easy, and sometimes you kind of have to fight for that. And if you're a soldier who recognizes the danger of the battle, you wouldn't march in unprotected. So believers who take their faith seriously understand the importance of spiritual preparation. And there's two great areas of vulnerability for the believer, the head and the heart. The heart is, is the center of your desires as a Christian. And so we can be really distracted by worldly pursuits and distractions. So we're to cover our heart with the breastplate of faith and love. That faith reflects this confidence in, in keeping this close relationship with Jesus, that he is our first love. And love, again, is really what declares our loyalty. That we do everything out of God's love and this outward expression, but it really stems from your heart. You, you protect it with faith and love. And that, that our head is another part that's attacked. It can be filled with lies and deceptions and anxieties. And so we cover it with the helmet of salvation. And this is that confidence that we know how this is going to end. We have confidence in God's truth as we trust his promises. We don't let any idea of this world shake our confidence of salvation. Protect yourself with these things. How we live is really important. And so that's the application. Again, we've alluded to it already, but our question when it comes to the return of Christ should not be when is he coming back, but what are we doing while he's away? Every single time Jesus spoke about his second coming to the disciples, the emphasis was never on when he would come back or even the conditions of when he'd come back, but what they should be doing while he's away. All of the parables, Matthew 24 and 25, have that exact emphasis. Stay awake. Be watchful, which means be busy, right? Until he comes back, because it could happen at any time. But I see in these kinds of verses that we have a limited opportunity to make maximum impact while he is away. Every moment and every day that goes on is one moment and one day closer to two eventualities our death or his return. So we can't waste these things. We have to live with purpose and intention to make every moment count. And also understand that we're all equipped to do way more than we realize. If you're wondering, what could I possibly do for the kingdom of God? He has things for you to do. And there's a calling in your life that's probably way higher than you know at this point in your life. And I pray for all of you to understand and actualize God's deepest calling for you as you make the most of these moments and have an amazing impact for his kingdom. And all of this is not because of you. It's because of him. There's so much to be doing while he is away. Don't look up, waiting for him to come back. But that's what we see in Acts 1. Right after Jesus, uh, the last time he spoke with his disciples in Acts 1, uh, they said, okay, Jesus, is this now the time that you're going to build your kingdom? Like, is this your second coming? But he hadn't even ascended yet. And he told them, it is not for you to know when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows. And he ascended to heaven, and all the disciples 
stared up in the sky like, is he coming back now? Is this, is this the moment? And two men dressed in white, probably angels, come back, come, came by and said, what are you doing staring into the sky? He's going to come back just the way he left. But get busy. Stay active. What are you doing until he comes back? That's the application we need to be drawing from these things. Jesus is coming back soon. What are you doing while he's away? And the last point is really this. We're going to go through this somewhat quickly. Well, we need to live with these promises. Hold on to the promises of the future. And this is the great blessed hope of believers, something that gets us through anything in this life. We know how it's going to end. We don't have to look to the future with fear or anxiety, but with certainty because of God's promises. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Paul concludes this whole section, which extends all the way back into the second half of chapter 4, by helping us see and recognize the true foundation of our hope. It's Jesus. And that's the point of all of this. And we're addressing some difficult issues in this passage, right? Judgment, salvation, darkness, light, rapture, second return, resurrection of believers. And, and more often than not, verses like this can create more questions than answers. But he finishes with the point. There's this great promise only found in Jesus that can bring us comfort, hope, and peace. That he did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus. Now, many people try their best just to ignore the future, to ignore the second coming, the judgment of Christ. And they might do it in a way of saying, you know, I know I've made some mistakes, but I'm not that bad, and justify it. They may just ignore or be indifferent to their sin, or they may just be in straight-up rebellion to God. But no matter how you slice it, the ending is the same, and it's not good destruction and damnation. All right, but we can come with this confidence that we're not going to be subjected to the same judgment. Because the only way to survive God's judgment is to avoid it altogether. And the only way to avoid this judgment is through the deliverance of Jesus and his salvation. The only hope we have for the future is Jesus and we read in the book of Revelation 20, there's going to be this great white throne judgment after Jesus returns, and this is part of the day of the Lord, that there is all of these books written. Some of them are, are containing every single deed that people have done, and others, the book of life. The only way to be written in the book of life is to have faith in Jesus. All right? If you're not in that book now the book is going to be open of all of the deeds. And it's not that you're confessing to God what you've done. He already knows, and you have to explain for yourself how you can get out of this judgment. So if you're confident in your own ability to argue with God about the sin of your life, that's what you're doing at the end. But if you're confident in Christ that his death was enough for you, that his death paid the price for your sins, and is no longer held against you, but you're in the book of life, 
That's how you survive the last day. And that's the point of this all. Not how and when it will happen, but the hope you have in Jesus. He died for you so that you may live together in him. And again, this is a mixed metaphor. Now he's talking about whether you're awake or asleep, whether you are dead or alive. You may live together with him. See, until you recognize how doomed you are apart from Christ, you'll never really fully appreciate the, mir- the miraculous reality of the cross of Christ really is. Jesus died for you, took the wrath of God upon himself, right? all the darkness and s- of sin and the misery of death that was deserved for you was taken by him. He died so that you may live. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that hopeful? And if that's encouraging to you, then you should be encouraging others in the same way, building them up, pointing them to Jesus. Every Christian has this responsibility to be encouraging one another and that amazing truth. It's the perspective and the purpose that we carry. And this is my, my final point here, the closing application, is that you know, we can be so consumed with the details that we read today, the timelines we try to create, that we forget the point. Jesus is our only hope of heaven. Our only hope. And how unfortunate it is that passages like this often just create confusion and division and, and provide really discouragement of people squabbling over the details. That's really Satan's oldest playbook, is to use God's own words against his people, right, to try to divide us and distract us. And many think, too, when they, when they get all of these details put together, that it's like this, this strong flex as a disciplined Christian, if I know exactly how it'll end. And I encourage you, first of all, to study as much as you can, to remain curious. Scripture is profitable to study. But you can be so confident in what you've built in the information that you forget the point. And that's what we have to remember, is that from the beginning to the end of today's passage, and really all of the Bible, the whole point is that Jesus is our only hope. That's what we need to be sharing with one another, to be encouraging one another with, and how we build each other up, is point each other to Jesus. So as we conclude, I just wanted to give you three words, all right? Passion, urgency, confidence. Think of those three words when you think about the end times. Passion, urgency, confidence. And first is this passion to really know what Jesus did for you. And if you accept that, you have this passion to share it with those who really need it. That's how a church stays effective, to reach the lost out of love and compassion. And urgency is knowing that every moment you have could be your last moment to do that. Jesus could come back at any moment. But until he does, he has work for you to do. And you do that joyfully out of your love for him. Be ready. Stay active. What are you waiting for? The last point is this confidence. The confidence, the hope that's only found in Jesus. Now, if you know Jesus and you have this confidence and this hope of heaven in him, you are in a great place. 
There's no better place to be. But if you're one who's wondering what happens when Jesus comes back, I don't know for sure how this is going to end for me, then you need the security only found in Jesus. And so I encourage any of you listening today, anyone listening online or even in the future, if you don't have that confidence, it's actually pretty simple. Have faith in Christ. All right? Know that you are a sinner, that you're destined for judgment. And there is nothing you can do personally to escape that judgment. There's no amount of good works. There's nothing you can do to undo it. There's no way to justify it. There is a judgment coming for your sin. But Jesus died for you and paid the price for your sin. All you have to do is believe that it was enough. To believe that he is the Son of God and that he, his price was paid for you. And then live your life in obedience to him as Lord. One day it will be evidently clear that he is Lord of all things. Until then, have your faith in him. There's a confidence found only in Jesus. And if you don't have that, what are you waiting for? Passion. Urgency. Confidence. We are the church and we are to stay awake and be ready. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text and thank you for all the confidence we can have in you. And God, I know there's probably many of us here today saying, but what about, and, and what if, and I'm with them, many questions we can have. And that's a beautiful thing, but God, I pray that it would not overshadow what we can know. That is, you are coming back and you are our only hope of heaven. So we look forward to that day with confidence. God, fill us with this passion, this urgency to share with those. I pray for anyone today who has that confidence in you, that are thinking about people in their life and their acquaintances. God, give them the urgency to share this news before it's too late. God, I'm just so thankful for all you're doing, the way you're working in this world, and all you have yet to do that one day will be fully restored through your power. But God, until that time, I just pray we can stay awake, stay active, all for your glory and in your power. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.